Hi, I'm Jennifer Zeman, your host of The Food That Binds, a new podcast on the Eat, Drink, Dine podcast network. Today, I'm joined by my friend, George Banks. George is currently the principal of Revel, a real estate consultancy with locations in Atlanta, Brooklyn, and Los Angeles. He's been involved as both the principal and consultant in the creation and operation of a number of destination retail projects, including the Atlanta Dairies and Crog Street Market, which was the first food hall in the Southeast. George is also an expert on urban development, adaptive reuse, the future of restaurants, and experience-driven design, in addition to being a huge history buff. Hi, George. Thanks for being here. Wow. Thank you for having me, Z. Can you tell my listeners what it is that you do and how you came here to be? Quickly, briefly, I am a real estate developer in Atlanta. I was a pretty typical real estate developer until my old colleagues and I uh, at Pace's Properties in 2014 decided to build a food hall, which was the first one in Atlanta and the first in the South, frankly. Uh, We opened Crog Street Market in 2014, and it was a bit of a hit. The sun and the moon and the stars all aligned for us. Um, And that was the moment that really altered my real estate trajectory to focus more on in-town adaptive reuse, but most importantly on food and beverage, music, entertainment, um, what in in my world they call the experience-driven stuff, um, as opposed to just the buying of of tchotchkes, which is really retail. And then in 2016, because of that experience, started Revel to help other larger institutional guys and girls do this sort of thing, which is how do we make the ground floor of our building really cool and neat and fun? And how do we get the right restaurants and the right coffee shops and bars and music and entertainment, all of which is there to help drive the values of the the real estate upstairs and next door. And a lot of your projects, just from what I've seen, have been about taking existing old Mm -hmm. structures like Krog, you said, was actually... Mm -hmm. Tyler Perry's old studio. There were um, Medea costumes. I swear to God, there were Medea costumes inside when we bought it. There were movie sets. It was absolutely nuts. Yeah, look, if, for the Atlanta listeners, everyone knows Pont City Market, our, our sort of food hall competitor up the road. Mm-hmm. For a lot of people in real estate, Pont City Market was eye-opening because in, again, Z, you know this, in a world that was not populated by large institutional real estate people and giant big companies, suddenly they took an old building and they put some cool retail in it and some apartments. And next thing you know, the building is being filled up with the biggest names in technology, paying the biggest prices for office space in the city. But Krog opened before Ponce, no? Krog opened before Ponce. We opened about eight months before and you were more influenced by Chelsea Market at the time. I, I helped you, by the way, full disclaimer. Yeah, so full disclaimer. I, I helped you consult and I know each other because I cold called you because I liked your old blog and I thought you had a very snarky attitude that was similar to mine and got your help to help us curate that first, the, the, the first, that, um, that crawl. And I'll tell the listeners with, with Z's help, we put together a draft list of users we wanted. And I bet you we got 80% of people will tell you what they love most about Krog is the selection of operators in there is such the greatest hits of Atlanta. Um, and it feels like a great place to go every day of the week. Uh, but now you well. have the dairies also happened, mm-hmm. which was mm-hmm. not, it was like Krog, but different. Can you tell people about that project? So, yeah. So then we bought the Atlanta, the old Atlanta dairies building on Memorial Drive, which had been vacant for years. Parmalat had actually made milk there uh, maybe 10 years ago. Um, and in that place, it started off, we were going to do sort of a, a retail version of Krog, which frankly means a, a, a flea market, which is a bad idea. So 
we then decided to kind of turn Krog on its head. Krog was about food. So we said, okay, let's, we don't want to, let's not do food again. Let's make dairies about music. Okay, fine. That sounds easy enough. And at, at Krog, we were very intentional. For example, we didn't put outlets in the, the dining area. If you can't get four hours of computer time, you don't need to be spending, you don't need to spend five hours at, at Krog, no offense. I want you to eat and have a good time, but I want to turn people and get a lot of people in the door. So we said, all right, let's take the exact opposite with dairies. Let's make it where you hang out. Let's encourage people to hang out and not spend money. And I bet if they do, they'll end up spending money because they spent the day. So the centerpiece of dairies was a big outdoor space. It, it really, frankly, was trying to be sort of an outdoor Chastain amphitheater. What if we had a, a Chastain with retail tenants on it? Um, we've got the live music venue. We're hoping to have a second one. We've got Wonder Kid, our diner open. We knew we wanted to have a diner. If you've been to the Imaginarium, that's fantastic what Three Taverns is doing. And that, again, is meant to be sort of the, the outdoor front living room for Reynoldstown. Pre-COVID, we didn't know that outdoor was so important. That just kind of lucky happenstance. Well, speaking of COVID, mm. that's really what I wanted to talk to you about as someone who started food halls. Um, <laughs> there's vaccines now. Oh, that's um, I'm getting yes. my second one. Oh, yeah, I already did. I'm very, I'm very grateful for science. But just in terms of where we were pre-COVID with food halls, I mean, I, as a restaurant person who mm -hmm. writes about food was already kind of getting tired of it, you know, because in Atlanta it happened and then it only, it almost became like, it was just everywhere. And then oh. and it wasn't a matter of quality. It wasn't a matter of no. experience. It was a matter of who can we get. And then also these brands that I really had loved got so diluted in a way that uh -huh. the quality went down. And uh -huh. I, I mean, I just did not become, I, I come, almost evolved out of being their target. Yeah. So like there before are, COVID, there are a lot of what shitty food happening? halls in the world. There are a lot of shitty food halls in the world, you yeah. know. And they're food I mean, courts. And the yes. only difference is they've got distressed wood um, and slightly nicer mm -hmm. furniture. Is the only exactly, difference. yeah. And like sparkling water for free in a dispenser. <laughs> the guys we sold crawled you had to get rid of the sparkling water for free. No, that's um, the best. Dude, I love that. Is, thing. I'm telling you, uh, true story. The bill, the annual bill no, on I'm sparkling sure. water and cups was like a hundred grand. Oh my yeah, gosh. totally. Oh my gosh. Okay, but but just before COVID happened, mm -hmm. where was the industry going? Too many food halls, too many places. Look, real estate is notorious for taking a good idea and and jumping the shark as quickly as possible, right? <laughs> um, the first enclosed mall was an amazing idea. Had we only built a hundred enclosed malls in this country, they'd all would still be unbelievable. The problem is we built 1,200 of them and 1,100 of them stink. Food hall is the exact same thing. Real estate guys just want to fill space. Suddenly a food hall feels like a space filler. Uh, I can't tell you how many people have called and said, well, I'll just lease you 30,000 square feet and you go make your money. It doesn't go like that. Uh, and so now we got 1,000 of them and 90% and, and of them are terrible. And I don't wish any ill on the people that operate inside of them, but they're going to go out of business because they were poorly constructed, poorly thought out, hastily organized bad locations but what comes out of food halls now with covid is it ghost kitchens maybe other ways of dining in public maybe is are we all gonna eat out of our house uh, lord i hope not i mean you, you don't go out to eat do you you order in i mean i order in you i get left take house out. in 18 months <laughs> so not true i go into a restaurant and i'll get takeout now that i'm vaccinated i feel comfortable doing that 
but you know, you still here in Georgia, you, you, you walk on a selfie stick and just. I should because I'm. Yeah. I walked into a place the other day to grab a burger, and I was like just 30 minutes north of Georgia, and nobody had a mask. Well, nobody has COVID outside the perimeter. No, they don't. They don't. So I mean, like when I'm, and I still go in because I'm and masked up, and and I do that. I got um a reservation for this weekend, so we're gonna go out and oh. sit at Redbird. Uh, yes. I really tr- trust Zeb Stevenson. Um, and so we're going to go there. He's got a heated patio. Okay. I'm more comfortable doing that. I mean, in general, I don't like people. Well, I knew so, this. Yeah. So, so like being at home was, was your job. It was great. It was an excuse to stay home mm-hmm. after having eaten out at restaurants for a long, long time. Right. Where was the rest of the world when this was happening in terms of food halls? Were people still using Krog? Did they close down? In February of 2020, yeah. Mm-hmm. In February of 2020, food halls, by and large, were still going strong, most of them. But to make the analogy with malls, a good mall was was doing very well in 2020. And bad malls were doing terrible. Um, we were starting to get calls in 19 from owners of real estate with food halls asking us to help them fix bad food halls. Those calls were starting in 2019. I've got a food hall. The guy can't pay the rent. It's no good. we got to re-envision it. What can we do? So we were already seeing too many. Put aside covid Imagine a COVIDless world in Atlanta. You have seen probably a dozen food halls built in the metropolitan area over, you know, from 2015 to 2022. And, and eight of them would have ended up closing eventually. You know, you've been left with crawl pots and maybe one more. That feels like it's still the case. Um, I think COVID has dramatically changed the extroverted introverts like you dining out. <laughs> that is something that people have to deal with in restaurant tours. And just how do you organize a kitchen for delivery and dine-in is a challenging logistical issue that restaurateurs are trying to deal with. But look, I'll tell you this, every suburban restaurateur I know and every market we're in will tell you that 2020 was the best year they had, period, bar none, record-setting profits. That's so strange to me. Record-setting profits. How is that possible, but not ITP, not inside the perimeter for those listening outside of Atlanta. For those outside of Atlanta, the in-town restaurateurs had a, some did all right and some did pretty well, but a lot of them struggled. And I'm not I read that, that there were 70,000 restaurants that had closed in the United States. So a year ago, people were talking that 300,000 would close. Mm-hmm. So you think it's actually been I less think it's damaging? Been much less damaging than we thought it was. I suspect the pain has been um, uneven, right? New York City probably lost more per capita than uh, Columbus, Ohio did. Well, they have more restaurants. Well, they have more restaurants, but I think they probably lost more per, you know, as a percent than other mm-hmm. places. I unfortunately, the political aspect of the pandemic played out. Suburban restaurateurs and suburban employees and suburban patrons were much more willing to go out and go to a restaurant. Um, I, I would categorize you in the sort of in-town set who was hesitant to go out, hesitant to go to the restaurants. Frankly, in a lot of in-town markets, restaurateurs were pressuring each other to stay closed, which I thought was odd. It, here that was happening. And there was also like a big, I felt, and I could be getting this wrong, but mm-hmm. I felt like there was an overwhelming sentiment as well that by dining out, you were endangering restaurant workers yes. as well, because I mean, they have been from what I'm reading, like really affected by this. And I mean, you see how many, I mean, the Giving Kitchen, which is an organization here that helps hospitality workers with medical needs. They had so many grants that they gave for people Mm -hmm. working in the industry that received COVID because they don't have health insurance. Which is ironic because number one, number one criticisms of, of restaurateurs has been their treatment of employees. And that's another thing. That's that's what I kind of I was interviewed by Eater Atlanta 
as kind of, you know, what I thought COVID was doing. And for me, I, I said that it was like a control alt delete for restaurants, you yes. know, and, and the fact that not only were restaurants going to have to change how they interacted with customers, but the owners of those restaurants were going to have to change how yes. they treated their employees. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's exactly I right. wonder now, we still haven't really talked about yeah. how the owners are operating right now. But I just wonder now if that's changing because I feel like a lot of the ownership was on us as the diners to take care of the employees and not the owners. And don't you remember when um, when Danny Meyer went to the one wage, there was a great deal of pushback. Some employees, but mostly customers, there's a great deal of pushback. Well, he reversed that though. It didn't. Yeah, yeah. It, 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 we had to undo it because it didn't take. <laughs> no, it didn't customers take. Customers were saying we don't we don't get this, which is mm-hmm. so dumb because the price of the meal is the same price of the meal whether it's we talk about illiteracy. People are innumerate. People do not understand math. It fell upon customers, or don't forget the, the best boogeyman was always the landlord. It's always the landlord's fault. If the restaurant tour succeeds, it's inspired the landlord, and if they fail, it's because of them. And the rent's too high, um, and so I got to charge you know more for the food, and I can't pay more for the employees. And I'm, I'm generalizing, but nevertheless, I would have told you the two biggest problems pre-pandemic were the landlord-tenant relationship and the restaurant-tour-employee relationship. And what do you uh, think is going to happen now post-COVID? Well, I'll yeah. tell you one thing. We, we are going to try, um, and I don't know if you you know Elizabeth Feichter and Kelly Campbell over at um, Southern Culinary Collective. They do um, a bunch of food events in town in Atlanta, food and wine. Um, we are starting, and we'll have more press about it this year, we are starting a restaurant management company where we will manage restaurants on behalf of landlords. So that we think takes out one stress point. So it's not tenant having to pay money to landlord for rent. It is operator, us running restaurant on landlord's behalf, landlord profits or doesn't profit based on how the restaurant. The second part of that we think is the other trick is we want, we are, we are going to make the company employee owned by the restaurant staff we hire. So suddenly now the restaurant tour is the employee because it's an ESOP, uh, and that entity is managing restaurants on behalf of building owners. Um, we've got one we're going to start this year. We hope to have more. We think it gets rid of two of the stress points. Perhaps it doesn't. But you think that people are ready to come back to food halls as well? You think that this is like, I mean, people you're are using you're, you're going out to You're going to go out to dinner. You're going to be going out to dinner before you know it in, inside restaurants. It's so crazy. I can't, I, until my kid is vaccinated, I can't imagine. But you think people are coming out. You think food halls are going to survive. You, know, I mean, I was, you don't think people will go out to dinner? I do. I just think that it's just changed for me. Like the thought of somebody bringing, I was already a germaphobe before COVID. <laughs> You know, because I've been burned a lot in restaurants. Listen, I've been burned in restaurants a lot. And I have the constitution of an ox, but I've been burned so many times that I became a total germaphobe. And the thought of somebody bringing me my fork, touching my glass. That's not normal. Well, I'm exceptional. Well, clearly. The rest of us unwashed masses deal with the germs. (laughs) But no, I mean, I will get back there, but... I just feel like it will be forever changed. I don't think, like I was telling you, Dan Barber said in an interview, kind of to paraphrase here, that he thought that the notion that we'd be getting back to quote unquote normal was preposterous because we're facing a recession. I mean, that's another huge consideration. I mean, people are hurting. Owners are hurting. Uh, I mean, who has money to open a restaurant right now? It's without a huge backer, that is. The independent operators, who has that? tell you how many restaurants I'm 
we are talking to about opening new spaces, uh, reopening old spaces. In the real estate world, retail leasing activity, which is a lot, a lot of restaurants, is brisk. People are doing deals. People are out there. I don't know why there's not a bigger recession out there. You, you fire everybody for a year uh, and you send them home. But I mean, look, the stock market's at an all-time high. I will tell you a lot in my world thought there would be a discount, a lot of discounted real estate to buy, and it hasn't happened yet. P- things that are selling are selling for big numbers. I think there's more distress to come in real estate. You know, the government throwing trillions of dollars at everybody to stay home doesn't hurt. Um, everybody's um, rich from, from money from the government. I don't see it. I mean, I really don't see the slowdown in dining spend as a com- total dollar. I think the more critical component for the restaurant industry is where and how that dollar is spent. And I, I think technology and COVID has pushed a great deal of that to delivery home slash home slash to go and not in person. And I think that stays. And I think that's a more difficult thing for the industry. So you do think it stays the pivot to yeah. curbside and online ordering without questions. or these restaurants, like you mentioned, ghost kitchens, yeah. you know, operating as a ghost kitchen, essentially, yeah. and the, you know, rise of ghost kitchens. You mentioned earlier that you think that there is some sort of line with food halls to ghost kitchens? Well, I mean, if you think about it, a ghost kitchen is just a food hall you don't let anybody come into. <laughs> but I mean, a ghost kitchen would... Yes, and so and so for the, the listeners, I was about to say the readers, for the listeners out there, a ghost kitchen is a facility with a collection of tiny kitchens that allow brands to prepare food that is then delivered to you via DoorDash, Grubhub, Uber Eats, what have you. The idea being that, look, the internet has finally come to food. I can get on my app. I can order my Shake Shack burger and it gets brought to me. Chances are that Shake Shack burger didn't get made in Shake Shack. It got made in a kitchen that Shake Shack leases inside a small warehouse somewhere. Um, Is that real? Absolutely. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. The Shake Shack burger did not come from Shake Shack. It came from Shake Shack from a kitchen they run in a warehouse. From their commercial kitchen. Of their commercial kitchen somewhere. Wow, Chili's, ha- Chili's has, on the reverse of that, Chili's has virtual brands that you can only find online. Just Wings, it's Wings, you're a wing person, try it. Mm-hmm. Um, that does come out of the Chili's kitchen, but you wouldn't know that it's a Chili's brand. You just get your app, the app and the algorithms say the best wings in your neighborhood are just wings. You order them, um, they show up at your door, you have no idea where they came from. They came out of a Chili's kitchen, but they're not affiliated. So then what's the benefit of brands or sorry, brands of just like small operators opening a restaurant where they have to deal with the public if they can eliminate all of that overhead and interaction moving forward? You know, like why would food halls continue as they have? I I think, again, I think you're going to see a shakeout. I don't think the mall is dead because I think there are a lot of some great malls and great locations with great traffic. And I don't think the food hall is dead. In 10 years, will will there still be Ponce and Krog? I think there will because I think people inherently want a social engaging time out with friends and, and, and strangers and be out and about. I mean, look at the, the 1918 flu didn't shut us down forever. The 20s roared. So I don't see that stopping. I, I do begin to wonder, though, if there isn't a slight move away from. So food halls took advantage of a trend toward, towards what we call called street food, right? A little more casual, a little more global, a little more um, low price, no service, right? Counter service order and go away. That was a trend in food that food halls took advantage of. I don't wonder if from this we're not going to see a small trend back towards fine dining in in room dining at a nicer experience. 
some people may say, and you're probably one of them, actually, you just admitted to this, um, I'm going to go out less, but when I do, it's going to be really nice. It's going to be Red Bird. It's going to be Bacchanalia. It's going to be something. Well, it doesn't really have to be nice. It just has to be like a chef or yeah. a restaurant that I trust, yeah. right? Yeah. And that can be anyone. I have a lot of restaurants that I trust, taco place, what have you. Mm-hmm. But I think that there's a lot more thought mm-hmm. in the process. But I think that's that's my personal opinion on where we'll be is that we will eventually return back, but we're going to be like, who's doing it right? You know, mm-hmm. who's being responsible? Who right. do we trust that they're not going to like turn and burn and not care about the food? I think you but care it, more about that than most consumers. I do. I mean, I'm, that's... Again, you know, we know you're exceptionally established. I know, but I'm also obsessed with food. But I also don't think that most consumers worked in restaurants like I have. Okay. So I think, so, or studied them as much as I have. So I don't think that they really understand like how dirty they can be in general. I mean, because listen, a lot of people, we're still all worried about COVID, but all of this, like, I, I don't want to get sick from a restaurant because somebody didn't wash their hands when they made oh, my burger. Really anymore. But you're, you're, you, you love Buford Highway as much as anybody, but so. You, no, you're, I love you're, everything. I love Buford Highway. The holes in the wall and, you know. But uh, most of those people take good care. I mean, I mean, like it's, it's interesting. The places I get sick from are not Buford Highway holes, uh, holes in the wall. It's in Buckhead. It's everybody's favorite Persian spot in Sandy Springs. You know, it's did like. You ever, did you read 10 Restaurants That Changed the World? Did you read that book? No, I did not. You should read the book. It was interesting. One note he makes is the reason Howard Johnson's as a restaurant became so popular is because so many restaurants were so badly run and so of ill repute. This is 100 years ago. Yeah. That standardization became the symbol of quality that you could trust. McDonald's used to be the same thing. The old line for Holiday Inn was the best surprise is no surprise. And for our listeners, George is also a total history nerd, which is <laughs> fascinating. <laughs> so we should just let him go. We should, we should go <laughs> little, but I didn't ask you a question. So I don't know why the, the small restaurant tour has a real problem today, tomorrow, in the future, because of the cost of customer acquisition. How do you get a customer? And let's be clear, the, the ghost kitchens aren't necessarily profitable. DoorDash still charges you 30% or whatever, just eye-watering high number that is. So it's not like you're making a ton of money in the ghost kitchen unless you're doing insane volume. Um, and then, by the way, I would tell you that most customers, I don't think, are as discerning as you are. And I believe most people will simply say, look, it's Friday night. I want wings. I'm going to get on DoorDash, Grubhub. I'm going to look for wings in my neighborhood, and I'm going to get them. And I don't really necessarily care who they come from. That should skeeve you out. That should skeeve the hell out of you that wings show up at your door. You don't know who made them, where they came from. I mean, I worry about ghost kitchens in terms of a quality control standpoint. I have not really ordered from any. But, I mean, there's ghost kitchens. Well, you that probably are- have. You don't know it. You ordered no. Shake Shack. You didn't know it came from a ghost uh, I don't order Shake Shack. Burgers don't travel, but um, no, I just wonder, there are true ghost kitchens like this guy, Pad Thai guy on Sandy Springs, Uh only he does all Pad Thai Uh and delivers through one of the services. Uh But then there are these restaurants that have remained closed and been operating. So I'm wondering, do you think some of those restaurants will stay with that model or do you think so people that pivoted will stay? Chick-fil-A already has a new prototype. I don't think they've seen it yet. And the new Chick-fil-A prototype is heavy drive through heavy curbside. They do a great job, I gotta they say. They do a great job. I, I am a, become addicted to the Chick-fil-A app um, and it is ready in no time. And um, they, the new prototype is heavy drive-through, heavy curbside and all, limited to none, limited to no in, in limb dining. And, but, but I think 
people will want in room dining. I, did, you know? I mean, no offense to Chick-fil-A, in room at Chick-fil-A is not the world's greatest experience. It's I mean, nice for kids. But yeah, I mean, listen. Was was oh my God, the, the, the playground at a, at a fast food restaurant has got to be the germiest place. Yet I will eat on the street the, in Mexico City. Yet you will eat on the street in Mexico City. Mm-hmm. Maybe the carpet in Hartsfield Airport in Germany, but that's a close <laughs> I was supposed to go to soft media opening last week for Andrew Zimmern's new yeah. food hall, Chattahoochee Food Works, mm-hmm. which is 22,000 square feet. One of the things he said when people were asking, are food halls really a thing that people are doing? His take was that he said that the events of the last six months have underscored the necessity to provide low barrier entry to business for food entrepreneurs. Do you think that that that. is an accurate statement? I think that's an, I do think that's an accurate statement. With food halls post COVID. uh, Do food halls do it? Maybe. I mean, you know, maybe not. Well, I mean, he was talking about in relation to food halls and his food hall opening. Do you think that this is a low barrier entry for people? Well, yes, it is. I don't know the economics of the Chattahoochee food hall. Right, all right. Um, I'm just saying food halls as a concept. In in a concept, yes, as as a concept, a food hall is a great way to do that. I'll tell you, though, I have found that a lot of new brands struggle in food halls because of a few reasons. Um, because, because the rents are high if you don't have high volume. If you're doing crazy volume, you make a lot of money in food halls. But it goes back to what I was talking about earlier. Customer acquisition cost is a real thing. If you're, a, if you're what restaurant would you open? Zeman's? Um, tacos. I would open Z- a taco stand. Okay. Zeman's Tacos. <laughs> Z, Z Tacos. You have a brand. You have an incredible leg up on people because you have a name in this town that has with it uh, some uh, cachet and some uh, notoriety and some uh, some knowledge. So you know, when somebody else goes to open tacos, they've got a, a real fight in front of them. How do I get people to know my taco brand? That's a little, that, that is not always an easy thing in a food hall because if you're sitting next to if if Velvet if Shake Shack is next to you in the food hall and somebody else is who's well known. The consumer is going to go to the brands they know. And so it's it's not a sure thing. I, I, I definitely agree with Andrew's comment that it's a low price alternative. It beats the hell out of a food truck and it's a whole lot less expensive than a real restaurant. Um, a food hall doesn't have the 30% service charge that you get with a ghost kitchen that's killing you on delivery. It's as, it, it is re, a food hall is as reasonable an opening salvo for an operator as there exists in this world. I just, unfortunately, I think the move to delivery and at-home dining is tilting the table in favor of the big brands with money, period. Yeah, it's just crazy because for the longest time, I didn't feel like you could get good food delivered in Atlanta. And it wasn't until, you know, or groceries delivered. And then there was Instacart and DoorDash and Uber Eats and Postmates. I remember seeing someone at Postmates at a building be like, hey, that." what are you? What are you doing? Yeah. Like they told me what they did. And I was like, Oh, finally. Um, and I, I just wonder if people can really go back. I, I really do. I'm very interested to see how the consumer interacts with restaurants or the diner rather yes. to not sound so like corporate speak interacts with restaurants post COVID because it's definitely a spectrum. There's definitely people that need to get out. I have a friend who just needs to go eat on patios. I mean, she loves it. She wants to go out and eat. My parents, listen, they're in New York. They're yeah. going, 
they're going and sitting inside of Mineta Tavern and yeah, the JG mail. And I don't care what the COVID <laughs> says. I'm getting my hamburger. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, they're, but because they're, they're choosing oh. specific restaurants that are doing it well. They're at Mineta. They have plastic dividers and people are separated. And yeah, but in are year, they care. In a year, your parents won't care. No one will care. You really believe that? I, I fundamentally wholeheartedly believe that no Why? one will care because what? We don't, we are not shocked from 100 years ago at the Spanish flu that killed millions upon millions of people. We got past that. We have short term memories. Even if COVID continues to make the rounds, flu makes the rounds, we still, we still went out. We'll probably wash our hands more, but they're not going to be plastic dividers between tables for the rest of the time. That's, that is, that is completely absurd in my opinion. So you think that we have gotten to kind of like the most severe that things are going to be in terms of sanitary restrictions yes, and, and, and soon we're just going to all go back to the way things were. No, I don't think it's the way things were. I don't, I think the sanitary, well, look, oh my God, you go to South Beach right now. There's no sanitary concerns. Did you see that article and in, oh. in the, in uh, that Adam Platt wrote about <laughs> how, if you want to see what the future of New York restaurants look like, look, look so at Miami. South Beach yeah, right now. They're all down there. The weather's better and it's, it's uh, less union. I fundamentally believe if it, I do not, there's no way that the, the health considerations continue. It's just not going to happen. We're not going to have half open restaurants. We're not going to have outdoor dining only. Now, I think consumers are going to make choices about where they take their meals based on convenience and technology. I think weekday lunch was already a dying animal, you know, out, dying out weekday lunch. Um, that was already dying before COVID. Why? Uh, um, because people would eat from their desk because we were being forced to, because the hour lunch break was no longer a thing, um, because I'm bringing lunch with me from home, whatever it is. Um, so that is probably where a lot of lost money gets converted into delivery. I think a lot of Friday night dinners that might've gone out and get converted to delivery. Cause I don't feel like going back out on Friday and I just want something. I know I can get really quality delivery here. So I think that changes. So I'm not sure the overall restaurant dollar gets spent changes. I think how and where it gets spent is, uh, is to be determined. Um, but I promise you, if you go to name your favorite New York restaurant, uh, if you go in a year from now, there will not be plastic dividers everywhere. Nobody wants that. No, I mean, it's if you're going out, it's for a certain experience yeah. to be taken care of. Yes. Instead of doing it yourself. Yes. And I think a lot of us want to be taken yes. care of. I just hope there's a way to be taken care of. I, I mean, I don't know. I just, I hate using the word, the new normal. I hate going and saying the back, to, you know, going back the it's way things were. The old normal. Covid. That's the old normal. Now we're in the normal normal. We're in the normal normal. Yeah, okay. It, well, in the normal normal, I'm just really curious as a restaurant person, because a lot of the people that are my colleagues feel the same way about going yeah. out to restaurants right now. Right now, I get it, but there's no. Do you think that a year from now, you think your colleagues will still not be no, going no into restaurants? You think they'll just be dine in, carry out, eat on the patio? Yeah, but I don't think. But I, I just my intuition says it's still not going to look the same, and I just wonder what it's going to look like. My relationship with food is changing very much, which is why I started this podcast. There's a lot of things around food that I wanted to explore, and this is just something I'm just very curious. We we couldn't touch another person. Right. For a year, and right. if and if the business is hospitality, which involves touching, touching or, or, or the, contact, how do you? I guess it just we evolve past that, but we never let our guard down. You know, maybe standards are standards are more stringent on sanitation, like you said. Maybe these pivots with curbside and more takeout, more delivery stay. 
I think they stay not because of health concerns. I think they stay because they appear appeal to at times people's want for uh, convenience. Well, I mean, COVID, it was a controlled delete, but it also fast forwarded a lot yeah. of timelines. Yes. Right. I mean, you've yeah. seen a lot of restaurants in Atlanta or chefs rather in Atlanta finally going out and hanging their own shingle after mm-hmm. after years of working for mm-hmm. executive chefs. But it should be interesting. It should be interesting to see what happens. But you think that that people are going to continue to spend and that there's nothing going to happen. Like we're not going to like have a huge recession. You know? oh, I don't know about that. I'm not the economist. If you no, I know. But like, the restaurant spend over the last year, it was almost not down at all from what it was the year before. It just got distributed differently. I see. And again, I think the suburban restaurants who make up the majority of the restaurants in the country, we all want to talk about, um, you know, Mineta Tavern in New York City, but that's not the restaurant experience for most human beings, right? Mm-hmm. Our Most of our restaurant experience is Chipotle. I mean, let's be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, or the or the whatever full service restaurant is in, you know, nearest your, your cul-de-sac. And those guys all had bang up years. And work from home is impacting a lot of this. Work from home now changes the math about where you take your meals. And suddenly the in-town locations maybe may not fare as well mm. when people are working from home and home is not in town. Interesting. You, to me, in an earlier conversation said you think that the diner restaurant tour relationship has changed. And now maybe the diner is no longer in charge. Is that, is that a fair assessment? Before it was the diner is always right. And maybe, maybe now the diner is wrong. I feel like before mm-hmm. COVID, it was restaurants, in my experience, nationwide, internationally, whatever, were very much in control mm-hmm. of how you interacted with them. Okay. And I talk about this a lot with my dad because we're both food nerds. And it's like you would show up for your reservation at seven o'clock and you'd be there on time and they'd be like, sorry, your table's not ready yet. And you still had to wait for 30 minutes, even though you had that contract that I made this I, reservation I, and I, I'm I, here. I tell my daughters that Seinfeld covered everything. But keep going. <laughs> it's very Seinfeld. Everything, everything has been covered by Seinfeld. There's nothing else to be discussed. But you know, you got there and, and there was like the exchange like with George and the doctor, right? And she went skiing. But this is changing to me because now I feel like they were coming to us for help to stay mm-hmm. afloat, yeah. us as diners. That's right. And then also changing a lot to cater to us diners when before with someone who eats in restaurant all the time, a lot of these, they're like, you're just lucky to be here. It's like very country club. Like you're just lucky you got in the door, follow our, follow our rules. And if you don't like it, go somewhere else. And I feel like now there's been a power shift for, for good or bad. I mean, it has had a power shift and I wonder if that power will shift back. You are dining at fancier restaurants and clearly you're going to. No. Okay. It is kind of fancier because it's sushi and sushi uh-huh. is never cheap. No. Unless you're eating bad sushi, and, mm-hmm. uh, or like a little does conveyor belt sushi survive the pandemic? I bet you it does. I bet it does too. That's not but, good sushi, but it's a great time. No, my God, kids love it. Yeah, it's like I, a game. I, I, I love it. But like, for instance, here's an example. So there's like this super fancy sushi restaurant on Beaufort Highway that everyone goes to. Everyone considers it yeah. top top sushi restaurant in Atlanta. Yes. And before COVID. There was literally a sign put on the door that said if you had to, your perfume or your cologne was too strong, you got to get out. That you were going to have to get out, and they would gladly book your reservation. So I'm talking about those types of things. Like, 
how many places? There are like 600,000 restaurants in the country. There are 20 of them that do that. Right. Or like, let's talk about like lottery systems for they reservations. Totally, they never kicked me out for having on too much perfume. But I'm saying, like, like, we're talking about I restaurants. Wearing, I was wearing too much. What, is Chipotle not a restaurant? Was it top hand? <laughs> I mean, that's fast casual. We're talking oh, about a sit down right. restaurant, you know, okay. or like the whole top system with getting reservations and the lottery. And remember how hard it was and, yeah. and just, or like Rayo's, for instance, in New York. You could not get. Staple House, you had to get on the, on the computer at 12 o'clock and 12.05. By 12.05, you were getting a two-top at 5.15 on a Tuesday. But now, listen, Rayo's in New York has been yeah. one of the, the hardest reservations to get in New York for decades. Yeah. And then COVID happens, and you can get it delivered. Yeah, I still get the jar of sauce in my house. I do, too. It's the best jar straw sauce. Thank Although you. Carbone has one coming out, and really? I'm very interested to see how it is. Uh, but yeah, that's the kind of stuff I'm talking about, like these restaurants that were hard to get into david chang talks about this we've got to get we i mean right it's it's all in the merch we got to get out of people in the restaurant we got to start selling our stuff to them Uh, we have to diversify our lines of business i hear you that there are restaurants like that my perception of sit down full service restaurants was that by and large across the country across the spectrum that type of hey get out of here without a tie on is a very small slice of full service restaurants right but i don't feel like that small slice yeah. can do that anymore. Oh, I can I don't, I don't think yeah. that the lottery system for reservations is happening. Except you know, Balthazar again. will still be able to turn away the bridge and tell a crowd whenever they choose to. They because just reopened. Gonna, I know, and they're going to line up. And you know, they're still going to be able to tell you it's an hour wait, and people will gladly say, okay. So you think that's still going to happen? That's at not going to change. At the, at the touristy joints like Balthazar that everyone goes and says, five restaurants, I got to eat at. This is one of them and I got to go. Plus, it's a nice restaurant. So who do you think has the power in the relationship between diner and restaurateur today? I think um, I think the, I think algorithms. I think Internet does. Really? I think you and I and most – you and I are different. I think most people are picking restaurants based on what something – someone online has told them, a review, a Facebook post – a Yelp, whatever you call it. Um, and I think this is the problem with ghost kitchens to go back. I think that the Chili's of the world and the Shake Shack's of the world can pay all the money to have the algorithms direct you, the diner, to their takeaway product. The small chef doesn't have that ability necessarily. It's a harder hill to climb. I think the major problem that small restaurateurs have, and I mean, look, the New York guys are not small, but your small average restaurateur now like has who? to- uh, Like who in Atlanta? Any brand new, any new restaurateur, yeah. anybody, Jared Steber, who's just reopening Little Bear after he was great. He's great. He has a huge hill to climb in front of him. Of how does he get people to know he's there? How does he get people to come to his restaurant when there's now infinite opportunities delivered by delivery? Social. Social. I mean, sure, there's always social media. There is always word of mouth, which is what you really want as a restaurateur. There's always the neighborhood goes there, people went, et cetera, down the road. But he's having to compete with larger restaurateurs and big chains that have lots of money to drive Facebook ads and drive reviews, to do Instagram advertising. Um, it's really hard, I think, to stand out for small restaurateurs in, in a world full of data. That's, I think, the problem. That's really interesting. And it doesn't matter how good his food is because it's amazing. If they don't come in the door, he's never going to. You can't convert him if you don't get him in the you can't, door. You can't convert him you can't get in the door. And I love there are a lot of great chefs out there who do make amazing food. But unfortunately, a lot of them, a lot, you know this, my biggest pre-COVID complaint was that most great chefs, their job was over as soon as the food hit the expo line. 
There was no, I don't care about the dining room. I don't care about the service. I don't care about how you're, how it's treated out there. I hit this great plate of food. You're welcome. To the point that I'm selling you a $30 item of food that cost me 40 bucks. That's bad business, but it's art. So here's this art for those guys who, and, and people who are artistically inclined as chefs to get them to put on their business person algorithm hat, I think is, is going to be difficult. Well, it should be very interesting to watch. I mean, I'm going back out this weekend. Is there a takeout review uh, job now in the world of, of, of periodicals and magazines? Am I, I mean, Wendell Brock over at the AJC, mm-hmm. who does a great job. I mean, he's really been consistent with that yeah. throughout the whole pandemic. Uh-huh. You know, I haven't been doing review. It's hard to review someone's food. It just, it, I, it feels, it's because just it's takeout? Because like, I do think a lot of, food needs to be plated correctly to be understood. It's a creative process. So, I mean, I think if we're talking about sit-down restaurants, the way that, say, for instance, Zeb Stevenson plates a salad is not only going to be artistic, but it may kind of be instructional on how to eat it in terms of sequence and whatnot. I mean, to get super high-level food nerd. but a super high-level food nerd, and it's got to be 1% of restaurants in the country. And then also there's dishes like, okay, let's talk about like Sichuan restaurants. I mean, Sichuan is probably one of my top three favorite things to eat. And there's this thing in Sichuan cooking called wakhe, and it's the fire, the breath of the wok. And you lose that after it sits in styrofoam and comes home and then you can finally sit down and properly eat it, even eating it immediately in your car. There's something but, in terms but, of we're talking about just to review. Now I no, love take out. I'm a big, but, I do. But, let's be, but, if, but if the restaurateur is selling you food to go, then the restaurateur needs to be willing to be judged on the quality of the food to go when it arrived at your house. Even if it took an hour and sat at an Uber Eats car drivers underneath a pizza that's part of the challenge. And if the restaurateur isn't willing to deliver you that food, if they're willing to deliver, they have to be willing to be reviewed on it. It's because it's a review. You took the food in the way that it was intended to be eaten, in this case, delivered. What's really interesting is that when I used to review restaurants back, like back, back, back for creative loafing, um, and I would always, he's great. He's a good guy. He's my, I follow him on Facebook. He's still, still right. I would literally pick up the creative loafing on Wednesday um, at, uh, at whatever restaurant I was in the nineties, just to read the, his grazing. It was the best. I remember when I first started food writing, I reached out to him to see if he could help Wait, me. Waitron <laughs> of the week. Waitron. Oh my God. That was, that was pre uh, predating all of the genderization. Waitron but back at creative loafing, like, and this was during Besher Rodell's days uh-huh. as the lead critic. You know, we used to discuss all the time. Why aren't we reviewing international restaurants like, I don't want to say ethnic, but international restaurants like Sichuan, the same that we're reviewing Bacchanalia. And what's interesting now- The same number of times or in the same- In the same way, like like it was very rare across all publications Mm -hmm. that you saw like a four-star review for say Tasty China. When that happened, that was a big deal. That was really post Ruth Reichel because she was one of the first in the New York Times to start really reviewing like Sichuan restaurants and stuff like that. But I mean, we would, because- this would be, I guess, the justification that I would understand that because there's so many different aspects to the experience, including service, mm-hmm. di- the atmosphere, all that mm-hmm. stuff. If we're all eating out of a takeout box, it levels the playing field in a very interesting way. It absolutely does. And now look, mm-hmm. there are a lot of chefs and restaurateurs who are doing creative things with takeout, good looking packaging, 
purposeful Lujo, packaging. Lujo right? sushi out of, totally. out of the Casaluchis. I um, mean, they, it's beautiful. What's their bucket uh, in Chicago is doing, you know. Uh, Alinea. Yeah, Alinea is doing molecular gastronomy. Go. Mm-hmm. They got a line out the door. Oh, like um, what was it? Masa in New York had like a $400 sushi yeah. kit or something like that you could take home to do. I mean, you know? Of course, uh, you got mm-hmm. impressed. But if, again, if, I think if you are the restaurateur who is, who is selling the food to go, then you are liable to have it reviewed in the way that it, it could. And so maybe the trade-off is you, the reviewer, have to do three or four to-go meals of the same thing. Well, I mean, we do that of, anyway, right? But I mean, you do that anyway. You're going to go three times to the new restaurant in, you know, incognito um, to review it. So review it three times. And if it gets delivered poorly, then the, the, you, you've done your job because the consumer has a right to know that when you get XYZ from this restaurant, it kind of sucks to go. What's interesting is when I did used to review restaurants, I would always, one of my reviews, like an extra one, I would get food to go. Because I, okay. I thought it was just an interesting thing. Sure. It was like in addition to the, the ones that I was Would required. you include that in your reviews? Like, by the way, I got the chocolate cake to go and it was amazing. No. Mm-mm. You wouldn't. No. But it, it was, was based on, it was based on in, if I wanted like a fourth visit, uh-huh. but I didn't want to go sit because after like two or three, they're like, all right, the jig is up. We know why you're here. Know you know? here. Yeah. Then I would get more. I get Were you really to doing this just to bilk your employer out of another free meal? Was that, what <laughs> that was? I mean, like. You're you're assuming that the amount that I that I didn't have to supplement my eating <laughs> <laughs> at every single job, which I have. The five hundred dollar priest fix was not uh, can... was not easily expensed. Back to creative loaf in corporate. <laughs> but uh, I do think that that would be interesting. But I think there would have to be some sort of mutual agreement between the restaurateur and the and the the reviewer that this was acceptable because I know I would take. I, I, it would make me uncomfortable if somebody just wanted to review me out of all my food in a box as a chef. I mean, I can imagine that would be very stressful. I bet it would be, but that's the reality of dining. Increasingly, food is going to come to you in a box. It's just the way it's going. That is, is, is as inexorable as getting your, your books brought, sent to you by Amazon. But how um, is that so if you're saying we're going to go back to eating in restaurants? I think we are, but I, I suspect over time the the pie chart, whatever you want to call it, the share of dining that is in your house is going nowhere but up. And so food halls, to go back to food halls, have to be able to provide a really fun environment that makes you want to get out and do all those things. I think good ones can. Um, I think great sit-down restaurants too, right? I mean, we've got the neighborhood French Bistro in Buckhead. It was the place that my wife and I, you know, the first place we came after a week in Mexico at our wedding. um, You know, For Anise? For Anise. Just go sit at the bar, have a glass of wine. You can order off the menu. You know people. It's super easy. It's everything you want in a in a neighborhood joint that's comfortable and 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 good service. And we had a, a brunch there on the patio the other day for one of my daughter's birthdays, and it was great to get out. It was outdoors, covered up. Those kind of places, I think, will continue to serve that need. Of, I want to get out. You know, can I get a niece? Muscles delivered to my house, probably. Are they going to be fine? I bet they're going to be fine. But would I rather go to a go to the restaurant, have somebody wait on me, and give me a bottle of wine? Me so it's ex- it's going to be experience driven. If people are so. going out of the house, it's going to be. I think that's right. They're going to be more selective, yes. and it's going to be somewhere that can provide an experience that yes. that multiple people are comfortable in. Yes, and again, because I think Friday night dinner now with family and kids, you might have said, "All right, let's get in the car and go get pizza." Now you may say, "Just forget it." I can get the pizza delivered. I can even get the booze delivered if I don't have it. Getting booze, booze delivered now is huge. Game changer. Game changer. And, and yeah, game changer. 
and and restaurants better in, in, embrace that because otherwise they're really going to lose out because now they're going to lose they're going to be delivering food and no booze and that's a hard business if i'm not getting the booze profit yeah i mean a lot of people like mercedes o'brien who was like kevin gillespie's like go-to oh yeah cocktail gal i mean she's so good she's she's been doing cocktail kits you know that's like another person that i've seen like kind of the pandemic has pushed her canned to, cocktails have exploded before oh now gosh. because of it oh my gosh i thought tip top is now going to be in delta of course of course they're going to be in delta well i can't believe they weren't on it before so why brilliant. is delta giving me a little gin and a tonic just give me the, give me the yeah and a glass of ice yeah well, give me four I, cans of gin and tonic while you're at it because you're here. I think it's going to be very interesting to watch what happens in the next year in Atlanta. Um, I mean, Atlanta is kind of an exception in terms that people have continued to party, continued to go out regardless. So, I, so I, I will tell you, um, uh, the the woman who uh, works with me in in Los Angeles, among her other duties, she's an overseas marketing and operations at Grand Central. Uh, market in downtown LA, right? Granddaddy Food Hall, mm-hmm. 60,000 feet, 50 vendors. The first weekend they were reopened this last summer, June, July, after all the LA shutdowns, they had 25,000 people come on Saturday and 25,000 people come on Sunday. Bananas. Oh my God, 50,000 people in June, 2020. People, I mean, we were shut, shut in, we were cooped up. You're going to see, I think it'll settle down, but you're going to see people wanting to get out. Every time I, I look at the restaurants I've been to recently have been full. I, I mean, there are there are reservations like I cannot get. Like I've been wanting yes. to go to the Chastain to check it out. And I'm Make not the in. kind of person that's going to call and say, hey, I'm I, this person. And I, I want yes, I, yes, I have a reservation for like 5.30 next Wednesday. Totally. On yeah. a Tuesday, you might get a 5.30. I drive by the Chastain four times a week because my daughter plays softball at the park next door. For everybody who doesn't know, the Chastain was an old restaurant that closed and reopened in the middle of COVID in a residential neighborhood. Odd duck location across the street from a where there's no park, other restaurant. Where there's no other restaurant within, within, within a mile and a house in a single family neighborhood. Zeman, I'm telling you, there is a there is a line for coffee at 10 in the morning. Yep. Um, there is a line out the door for dinner. The patio is full. I now have to actually negotiate true story, drunk people walking into the road at eight o'clock at night on a Wednesday, not looking for traffic. Um, because they're they blowing up at the amphitheater. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Can you imagine? So yeah, so everyone else is listening. There's the amphitheater next door when the amphitheater is going, Oh my God, they're, they're, somebody is going to get, um, is going to get killed walking yeah. across the street drunk. Yeah. And the, and they're going to be rich at the good. restaurant. Well, George, I certainly appreciate you, you. joining me. I always enjoy talking to you, Same. but especially about this kind of stuff because you have so much expertise. It's true. Make it well. Well, thank you for having me. This was fun. We'll do it anytime. We'll talk about anything you want to talk about. Is there anything you want to tell listeners or how they can keep up with your work or Mm. what they should look out for? Anything you want to plug? Uh, Anything I want to plug? Well, what we, um, the website is revel.company. We uh, write occasional notes on uh, newsletters on what's going on in the world. You can sign up. I subscribe. It's very good. Thank you. Um, Being snarky is fun. We've got some new projects in other cities, so we'll know more about this restaurant company that we're starting. Hopefully, it uh, takes off like we hope it will, and um, and that's it. This was uh, this was enjoyable. I can't wait to hear all the other ones you're doing. Well, that wraps up this episode of the Food That Binds. Thank you so much for listening, and thank you to George Banks for joining us. If you want to keep up with everything he's doing, catch him on Revel.company. If you want to keep up with me on social, you can find me at Jennifer Zeman on Instagram and Twitter. 
We're back for another episode on Wednesday with food writer, podcast host, and best-selling cookbook author, Julia Tertian. Julia is the author of Now and Again, Be the Resistance, and Small Victories. She also hosts the podcast called Keep Calm and Cook On. She has a new cookbook out called Simply Julia, which features 110 easy recipes for healthy comfort food, along with some incredibly thought-provoking essays on her relationship with food and more. Again, we're back on Wednesday. Until then, I'm Jennifer Zeman, and you've been listening to the Food That Binds on the Eat, Drink, Dine podcast network.